Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Bandit 1.0 was released. If you don't remember what Bandit is, previously we talked with Matt Trudell about Bandit as a Phoenix web server. So you can check that out, that whole interview with him in episode 128. But Bandit is an alternate web server as opposed to like a replacement or alternative to Cowboy. This is a big deal because they've done a lot of work to make Bandit really easy to swap into new or existing Phoenix projects. Like very little config or or changes are required. So even if you don't want to stick with it, it's easy to try it out and just run some tests and maybe run it on a staging server and just see how does this work? or Do we feel good about this? So that's really cool. Just wanted to pass along. There's an Elixir forum post that's been written up about this. There's also a blog post to go along with this that covers the history of the project and the release. But just to give you a little idea, it's up to 1.5 times faster than Cowboy for HTTP2 connections and up to four times faster than Cowboy for HTTP1 connections. Nice. And there are two libraries. So there's Bandit, which is a pure Elixir alternative to Cowboy, which Cowboy is written in Erlang, and Thousand Island, which is a pure Elixir alternative to the Erlang Ranch library. Yeah, Ranch being the connection pooler. So a very critical piece of infrastructure to most, well, all Phoenix apps, (laughs) (laughs) and and probably most Elixir apps too, any kind of connection. Anyway, I thought it was pretty interesting, like the things that they're still planning to do as well. Mm -hmm. So he's got a short list of them, adding support for WebSockets over HTTP2, cool moving protocol switching into Thousand Island, the, the pooler, to mirror the transport upgrade work that's currently in, in progress. I thought that was interesting. Protocol switching, I guess, meaning like upgrading from HTTP 1 to like WebSocket, maybe? I'm not sure. Two more. Implementing a NIF or a Rustler library to support the native implementations of hot code paths within Bandit, which would be, as of now, opt-in by default whenever they get that. That could provide for some substantial performance gains in many common cases. So it could get even faster. Mm-hmm. You know, when all businesses grow up and become enterprise, they need gRPC style connections. And <laughs> yeah, they've got plans on facilitating those kinds of improvements. And then of course, HTTP3, but that sounds like it's still a long way away. All that to say is these are wonderful improvements in the future. And that 1.0 isn't a, ah, we're done. And we're going to just not do anything for a while. <laughs> For a while, it's still going to be worked on for a good bit. When I was thinking about this, like, you know, HTTP 2, it's a fairly complex, quite a bit more complex protocol than HTTP 1. And when we talked with Matt about Bandit, he was saying one of the reasons it could be so fast is because they are not trying to be a completely general purpose thing. They are saying, what do I have to do to get it to plug? And if Elixir doesn't use this feature or Phoenix doesn't use this feature, don't build it. That's part of it. It's like, just don't have all this extra code that we're not going to use to be able to answer requests in Phoenix. Yeah. But then I also thought, you know, like recently in the news, there's been like this whole HTTP2 rapid reset DDoS attack, which has to do with manipulating a built-in HTTP2 protocol feature. I'd been following the news around the rapid reset attack, then thinking how terrible it would be to have to like build this kind of stuff. But that's what Matt has taken upon himself, you know, like that he is trying to build the actual thing that handles these requests. So I don't know anything about how Bandit is or is not potentially susceptible to this. 
Actually, the same would apply to cowboy. Is cowboy susceptible to it? I don't know. Yeah, there's just more that we don't quite know on that, but it's an exciting development. And I love that it's written in Elixir so that it is more approachable by non-Erlang people who are just, you know, coming to Elixir and, and they've learned Elixir and, and they don't know any Erlang. So anyway, congrats to Matt Trudell and the team. Oh, yeah. Word of advice, when you try it out, just heads up the exception reporting frameworks like Honey Badger or Sentry or AppSignal and all them. They typically have code written to handle like certain cowboy exceptions. Mm. If you switch over to Bandit, you might get a flood of exceptions that were normally ignored you know, from the cowboy adapter. So just heads up, you might have to do a little bit more work there if those adapters haven't already counted for Bandit. All right, well, moving on. Jose Valim shared some new compiler error reporting diagnostics coming to Elixir in 1.16. So we've got a couple of screenshots, but it's just a DevX improvement, right? So when there's an exception or something can't compile, I mean, like there's an unclosed delimiter or you're missing an end or a do somewhere, we already have pretty good like error messaging around that, but it just kind of tells you the line. And then it's like, where's the end here? The improvement here is now that the error messages will have like little arrows, little ASCII like angle lines <laughs> that point to the exact like placement in the line where it was expecting the other delimiter to, to terminate or something like that. So it's just much more readable in my opinion. And it's not just for errors or compile issues. It's also for warnings. So if you're opening a function and you got two arguments in there and you're not using one of them, like, you know, the, the compile will warn you and says, hey, this variable is not used. It's understandable, right? You can still get it today. But now there's going to be a yellow little tilde underline underneath the exact variable that's unused. So that way, if you're doing some funky, like multiple assignments in one line, <laughs> now you know exactly which one it, it's unused. Same for, you know, undefined, anything that's mismatched, all the things that could point to exactly where the error is happening. Now we've got nice little ASCII arrow line things going to them. So that's wonderful. Yeah, if you imagine like maybe you're using VS Code or something like that, where you're seeing some of those squiggle lines in your editor to say this is unused or there's an error here. Imagine that kind of information, that kind of feedback that's easier to see because it's like lined up with your code, but in the console. And that's the cool part. You're taking that and making so the console error feedback is so much cleaner. Because, you know, some of us like to work in different areas or we're working, you know, we're jumping machines and the console is always there. We're always working with the console. Having that be a better experience is awesome. And next up, a cool table breakdown comparing the different language servers. You know, we're just talking about LSPs and language servers. But right now we have about three options that are in the Elixir community in the ecosystem. We have Elixir LS, which is the kind of de facto one that's, that's available. And then there's the newer ones of Lexical and Next LS. And friend of the show, Noah Betson, has put together a table that goes through all of these different features across these different language servers identifying what features are in which servers. And he's actually taken the extra step to reach out to Mitch of NextLS and Steve with Lexical to make sure that the feature columns are actually correct and representing where they currently are in these projects. And just remember that NextLS and Lexical are very new and they are advancing. So they are not going to be as complete in some areas as others. But if you've been wondering and wanting to keep track of like, how do these compare? 
this is a great little write-up. So it's just all in the GitHub gist, but it's a nicely formatted table. Very easy to understand. Thank you, Noah, for putting that together. All right, well, speaking of LSPs, there seems to be a new Erlang language server that was announced at Codebeam Europe. So we've got a couple of tweets about it and a, and a link that goes to a, a GitHub site that explains what's going on. If you're in the Erlang world, you probably have heard of Erlang LS. And this Erlang language server platform, which is the new one, essentially supersedes that Erlang LS. I don't know the details yet. It seems like it's done by the same team. So maybe they're just upgrading their experience and or maybe rewriting it in Rust. Hey, that's the big thing on this one. Yeah, that's right. It's it's going to be blazingly fast. So that's great. Stay tuned for Erlang language platform updates. That seems to be the new LSP for Erlangers. And just following on with talking about these language servers, Next.ls also got a bundle of updates. So we have a link to this in the show notes, uh, but it has completion support, support for mix underscore ENV, and mix underscore target as like these command line inputs and go to support for local variables. Very nice. Fly.io. It's a great place to run Elixir apps with many global regions, a private network that makes it easy to cluster your app and a powerful CLI. It's something you should really try out. Experience it for yourself at fly.io. Okay, let's move on from LSPs. I love LSPs, but there's more in the Elixir world going on. Let's talk about AI. <laughs> we got lots of AI stuff too in the Elixir world lately. And this seems like there is a new model on the block called Mistral. And Mistral is coming to Bumblebee, thanks to, you probably guessed it, Sean Moriarty. So he's got a PR that was merged for adding the Mistral support. You might be wondering what is Mistral. You know, these AI folks love to just make up words, and I don't know what these words mean. We'll just, let's define it. So Mistral 7B-V0.1 is its true name, as born by its mother, is a small yet powerful model adaptable to many use cases. Mistral 7B is better than Llama 2, 13. 7B, I think, is 7 billion, and, and Llama 2, 13 billion. Mm -hmm. On all benchmarks, has natural coding abilities and 8,000 sequence length. It's released under the Apache 2.0 license. So you might think, you know, like higher numbers means better things. Llama 2 has 13 billion. Is it parameters? Is that is that what that's counting? I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> it ends up being a bigger model, and it's been more complex and actually requires more hardware to be able to run it yeah yeah well or 13 billion good vibes at least and so there's <laughs> you got llama 2 13 billion and then mistral at 7 billion so that's almost half as much right so you'd expect it to be like half as good <laughs> is that how the world works <laughs> i don't know it seems to be performing better you know than that so i i don't know how they do that they just they, they're just they're just good at it i guess they made it easy to deploy on any cloud and even on gaming GPUs. So that's really good. It's described to be optimal for low latency, text summarization, classification, text completion, and code completion. All that sounds pretty nifty. I think GitHub Copilot might be interested in that. Yeah, the really exciting part about Mistral AI is it is open source. It is an Apache 2 license. That's the big deal right? Like Llama, it's put out by Meta, you know, Facebook, and they have a business-friendly license. Like it is really permissive in what I can do and, and use this in my own business and host it myself. But still, the model is not open source. And Mistral, their whole group organization idea is we are creating open source models. 
So that is the game changer. That's very exciting. And to see that come to Elixir, mm -hmm, I can't wait to start playing with it. (laughs) (laughs) And next up on a related note, Sean Moriarty wrote up an explanation of the process they use for adding new models to Bumblebee. So we were just talking about how Mistral is coming to Bumblebee and someone is asking on Twitter, hey, how do you do this? Like, how do you add new models to Bumblebee? So if you've ever wanted to add Bumblebee support to a model that you need in your company or with your group or whatever, or it's just something you've wanted, Sean lays out the process. And it's a very long, more detailed process where he's linking to code and stuff. So we're just going to get a high level overview of the different pieces. So first, they create a mapping for the model. And this is where they tell Bumblebee how to map model names and hugging faces config.json to an actual Bumblebee module. And then the next step is to map the Elixir configuration to the hugging face configuration. They slightly alter the configuration names for consistency, but it's easy to see and follow if you're just like visually comparing them, like from the Python version to an Elixir one. Yeah, sounds like data processing so far. Yeah, it's just, just mapping stuff. And then the next step is actually implementing the Axon version of the model given the model spec or configuration. So for most models, you can base an implementation that you want, maybe on a new model, base it off of an existing model that's already similar and that's in the repository and just change some of the minor details. And the implementations map more or less directly to the PyTorch implementation in the Hugging Face repo. And each PyTorch module, which is a class, is analogous to a function in Bumblebee. And then step four, the final step, is to define the parameter mapping. And this is how they map PyTorch parameters to axon parameters. It's pretty simple. You just take the axon parameter names and define how they should map to PyTorch parameter names in the PyTorch model. And during conversion, Bumblebee will use this mapping to convert the parameter map into something that axon model can use. So then then you've like got it baked in, right? It's, it's ready to go. So then you need to start testing it. So for testing these implementations, they typically look at the hugging face examples, like you know, hugging face will show like these minimal examples of how to use this and what input should give you what outputs as a, as a model for checking their implementation that everything's lining up correctly. And if they don't quite line up, then Axon, I learned from this, has some really cool intermediate hooks that you can hook into to debug and find progress along the way of like, where am I missing things? Where are things not aligned up? So that's really cool. Thanks, Sean, for documenting some of that. So and giving people a, a, a path in, like if they're wanting to start bringing more models over to Bumblebee. Yeah, that testing method reminds me of how I test crypto hashing kind of things or encryption kind of things. Because mm-hmm. I mean, when you get to the other side of it, like you turn the string of hello into just a bunch of trash. Like, I don't know if that trash is right, you know? Is that secure trash? (laughs) Yeah, is that secure or is that insecure? I don't know. And so hopefully the spec has like an example, like what, you know, you just mentioned. And so you can check the output of that. And and so they usually have like, well, like that, like a string of hello and and then the expected trash on the other side to to make sure that you're getting it exactly the the right way, which usually means... You got timestamps in there too. So you usually have to stub your timestamps. Yeah. And start with the same seeds and all that. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on. There's a new library out there called Permit. And it is kind of like CanCan in the Ruby world where it's inspired by CanCan, but it's it's about doing authorization checks in Phoenix. Usually folks, I think, run their own, you know, but CanCan was such a pervasive pattern in a lot of Ruby templates. And CanCan, you know, is a funny dance. First of all, but two, it's the word can, you know, question mark. Can this user do this thing? 
you make up whatever rules you need in there, right? It's very extensible. It can adapt to your language pretty easily. Anyway, all that to say is that Permit is a library that follows that pattern now, and it's available as three packages in Hex. First, there's just Permit, which is the core application providing the syntax for authorization rules. It's more of a pattern on, on how to deal with this. Then there's also a Permit Ecto, where this provides automatic conversion of these authorization rules to Ecto queries. So that's nifty. I like this one because it's it acts a little bit more like a scope of what the user can access. I really like that pattern for authorization checks. I don't really like having a bunch of like booleans in my my template. Like, can this user you know list these things? And if you can list these things, then also go fetch these things. You know, those are essentially two operations where if I can just permit and retrieve the things all in one go in one question, I like that pattern better. Anyway, so permit ecto seems to do that, and then there's also Permit Phoenix, which will also preload and check authorizations for records in the controller and live view action. So it's just a little bit of a glue library, as you will. Pretty nifty library. Go check it out. There's a whole blog post by Curiosum that uh, explains how to use it. And next up, just following up from a previous discussion we had in episode 162, where we were talking about Orb. So Orb is an Elixir-backed WebAssembly that you can, you know, code it on the server, but it runs in the browser because it's actually compiling down to WebAssembly, which gets run in the browser, right? And we talked with Patrick Smith about Orb and using WebAssembly in 162. So go check that out. But to follow up, Patrick Smith also spoke at ElixirConf about Orb. So if you're interested in that and want to see more, you can definitely check out that. We got a link to that in the show notes, but we also got a link to the time signature of his presentation because when we were talking with him, he was describing using a color picker, how you have very low latency on like dragging around this little color picker within a palette of a gradation of color. And as you drag it around, you see immediate updates, right? And so if you imagine trying to do that in live view, it's going to stutter just because you have latency. Yeah. I mean, well, there's like 16 million colors or something like that, right? Yeah. And otherwise, you know, you're building it in something like a front end framework, like JavaScript, and it's all running locally. So the alternative is, hey, you could write it still using Elixir code, but it's coming out as WebAssembly. And so he's showing that off in his demo. So we have a link to that. We want to actually see what this looks like for complex, but very smooth browser side operations of WebAssembly. All right, rounding out the news, we got a couple of conferences. They're coming up. They're being announced. They're looking for papers. The first one is just that it was announced, and that's NervesConf. I think there was a bit of a hiatus there, so it's nice to see them coming back. Got a link to Todd Resedek's tweet that announces it. All I know at this point is that it's May 9th, 2024, as it says on his tweet. If you go to nervesconf.com, I, I don't think it exists. So that's still in process, I, I reckon, as of time of recording, at least. And we saw one other conference we wanted to pass along. This one is called Elixir Safari, and it's in Africa. So it's elixirconf.africa. That's June of next year, the 19th through the 23rd. Now, it's not clear at this point. This is still very early. They don't even have like a call for proposals, call for talks yet. We don't yet know, at least I couldn't tell, if it's going to be in-person or virtual or a hybrid or anything like that. But just want to put that on your radar. Since we're talking about conferences, just a reminder from last week to ElixirConf Europe 2024, the call for talks is open for that one. And the dates for that one is April 18th through the 19th of next year as well. This one is in Lisbon, Portugal, but it's also virtual. If you're thinking about giving a talk, go hit them up. That ElixirConf.eu and ElixirConf.Africa domains. That's like, that's, that's, that's cool. That is nice. Very stylish. Yeah. (laughs) ElixirConf.us. 
Or is it elixirconf.com? Now I got to try. Elixirconf.us? Yeah, it works. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.